Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to the seventh episode of our podcast. Today is a conversation I had with a gentleman by the name of Mark Malloy. Mark is an experienced intensive care paramedic and operations manager for the ACT Ambulance Service. He has a strong reputation in both clinical and managerial standards and his background spans mostly, uh, actually most areas of ambulance, which includes Uh, hazardous area response team, emergency management, incident response, and command and control. Following his passion, Mark is currently a professional trainer in the Canadian Road to Mental Readiness Program, as well as a lifeline crisis support volunteer. Mark also recently uh, assumed the role of business development and corporate trainer role for Lifeline Canberra. Join me alongside Mark on this week's episode of the podcast as we delve into the positive impact that evidence-based educational programs have on encouraging a long-term mentally healthy workplace. All right, welcome, Mark. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and thanks for coming up to the conference. No, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. That's okay. Mark, tell us a bit about your your story, where your journey to where you are today at a high level professionally, I guess, from entering the paramedics. Yeah, so prior to paramedics, my background was in psychology and I um, was, that was the field I saw myself going into, into rehabilitative therapies, uh, particularly for people with learning difficulties. Um, And I had a bit of a life shift, a bit of a a quarter life crisis, I sort of like to call it, and went traveling, came back and decided to to look at something different and and went into the paramedic sort of um, uh, realm. I entered into uh, West Midlands Ambulance Service in the UK on, it was a graduate um, paramedic program. So they were looking for people with previous experience, exposure, and a bit of life skills and other learnings. And they were looking for people that they were hoping were going to retain and stay in the service, but also bring in additional skills and sort of uh, to a small and very much growing service. But at that time, they were also very key on understanding a bit more about resilience within their workforce mm. and trying to bring in those, those strengthening skills. So this, so you did psychology degree, yep. yeah, and then and then you went on a break. You went travelling, had yep. fun, like most. But what age are we talking? Like twenty four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty twenty five is where I went off okay. and did all my big travels and stuff. Really cool. Yeah, and then um, then came back and and say into the um, ambulance service and um, had a very um, 
privileged career within the ambulance service, but in the UK, and then that's brought me over to Australia as well. So you entered the paramedics around about what the age of twenty seven ish is a couple of year high out, like yeah, yeah, about twenty seven. Okay, about, yeah, about twenty seven, um, and that was in the UK, yep. based over there as an entry level. Yep, and, and I went in as a yeah, sort of uh, what they call over there is as a technician. I was okay. a, on a paramedic program, so you go in as a technician, you have to learn your craft. It was very much like a military style school of learning your craft there. And then I was one of the early paramedics to go through the uh, transfer sort of degree into paramedicine. So going from uh, technician up to paramedics with a with the, the university style qualifications as opposed to being internal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, and then from that I did uh, some spells in in sort of mentoring, managing a few other bits and pieces over there, and then ended up in what they call a hazardous area response team, which is. Um, sort of exactly that, it was training paramedics to go into areas that were too dangerous to send them otherwise. So it was working with military, police, fire, all those sort of alongside to be able to access patients quicker um, and at a point where they couldn't send normal paramedics as it were. So it was a, a real privilege, it was a great space to be in, but it was a really good space to, to see how other services were working and really work alongside them as well. So, so what year are we looking at when we're in when you're in your your entry level paramedics in the with the ambulance in in the UK? What year is that roughly? We're talking about two thousand three. Two thousand three. Okay, so there's a bit of context around that. So you you did that, and how quickly did you get to that area where you were doing the the heart, as I refer it to? Is that correct? Yep, that was probably took me about eight years to get to that. Wow. So that was that was two thousand eleven ish. Yep, and then uh, and then I did that for for a little while and moved over to. Australia as an intensive care paramedic in 2013. Okay, so you moved to Australia 2013, yep. and where, where were you based? ACT Ambulance Service. Yep. Um, and so I came in as a, as a lateral transfer, as they call it, um, and I was there not particularly long, and then I got a role as uh, operations manager for them. So I've, um, my current title was operations manager for ACT Ambulance Service, and I'm on unpaid leave from them at the moment while I'm working for Lifeline. Um, so it's uh, which is something that I'm looking like is going to be a permanent move for me because I've really okay. found a passion. Um, but yeah, it's sort of I'm still very much um, motivated by supporting services. We want to get into the lifeline role and what you're doing at the moment shortly for sure because that's really interesting. Uh, but I mean, you've done a lot of stuff, yeah, and you've got a lot of experience, mm-hmm. uh, obviously in the UK and Australia, but. But tell me, how did you see the differences with the UK and the emergency services sector uh, and Australia as from a mental health perspective? I think the interesting thing is that within um, the emergency services perspective, you know, the, the area of mental health has never been so prominent. You know, people, it's there and people are talking about it and we know that it's something that's an issue. And unfortunately, we're seeing the impacts through uh, image, uh, sorry, injury and illness uh, within our officers, but also, mm. unfortunately, you know, those who are taking their lives at the, the most um, extreme end of it. Um, and the, statistically, there is no major difference between here and there. There's just a higher number of people in the role over there. So, um, you know, and the... the um, so the workforce is greater? Yeah, the workforce is greater. So you sort of, in some ways, it seems to amplify it. In some ways, it seems to sort of dilute it. It's, it's a weird yeah. sort of impact that it has. Um, but what I have seen is that really, within most services, there's still that trying to find out actually how are we going to do this? What do we need to do? Where are we? What are services doing that's working? Mm. Um, how can we share that knowledge? And, and you know, what's that next step? And we've sort of moved from 
it being all responsibility of agencies or being agencies trying to put all that responsibility back onto individuals. Mm. And it's finding that common ground of actually, mm. how do we all play a role in mm. this? And that's where we're at at the moment. Yeah, and so, so the challenge exists uh, as well in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're saying that they've, they're also looking at the how-to is, yep. is the part that they're trying to refine and get better. Yep. Uh, would you say would you say that when you've come to Australia that you've seen uh, a bit of a, a difference with how we're doing it compared to what they're doing or are we further along in the cycle are we doing things different better worse or is there just a do you have any comment on that as far as the differences between the two yeah within a mental health area it's quite strange because I'd say in a lot of other areas you know, particularly from a paramedic point of view, you know, sort of clinically and um, sort of, you know, how we they do the role, it's very, very advanced. But in terms of, I think, how we're dealing with this problem, there's, there's still a staggering amount of similarities. I think mm. one of the areas that we're starting to really get good over here, or what I've been involved with that I'm really impressed with, is the likes of the peer support and um, mm. the internal welfare programs. Mm. Um, but still that continued understanding and education of what's accepted people to do for themselves and that's that stigma around people putting their hand up or potentially showing signs of decline or illness um is still there unfortunately Mm. and it doesn't seem like something that's going to be solved overnight this is a process that we need to obviously firstly understand thoroughly of Mm. what the challenge is correctly in front of us but then also identify well, well, what's the solution and who needs to be a part of that? As you mentioned before, peer workers are becoming a really important part of the mental health workforce. Yep. Uh, do you see that continuing to develop? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot you know, of, of evidence out there that shows that, but it's just sort of as well as being from a uniformed service, it, it makes sense. You know, people like go for like. You know, people will trust and talk to people who they feel will understand them, may have some experience in what they've been exposed to or, or um, where they you know, feel that potentially their um, injury has resulted from. Um, and yeah, there's that sort of trust factor, I suppose, of, of feeling that you're not going to be judged or you're going to be understood. There's a, a real um, concern that um, a lot of the time, if a member of a uniform service talks to a mental health professional, one of the biggest battles they may face is that that person doesn't truly understand the world that they've come from. Mm. So they find they're having to justify and explain not just the injury, not just what they came through, but actually their world, which mm. is um, very personal to them. You, you talk, uh, and you're going to be talking about uh, a lot to do with the psychological risk mm-hmm. and, the, and the analysis of that within organisations. Yep. Specifically, emergency services uh, uh, is, is probably where your focus is. Yep. Tell, us, tell us a bit about that and what you're seeing with, that, with those risks. Yeah, and this is sort of looking at really in terms of where does that risk lie in terms of psychological, you know, sort of risk assessment and looking at, um, you know, really to understand the risk, then we can start to possibly put in correct programs and education and understanding around where maybe we can make the best impact and the best difference. And this is really sort of breaking down and understanding that the the individual carries a degree of risk and um, you know sort of uh, inherited history into that. Um, that the organisation itself has um, a place to play in terms of its history um, and its culture and the way in which you know often as much as we are in it, change cultures within most of the agencies. 
that historical factor is going to still play a factor of both performance management but also mental health management in the past and that's got to be addressed um, through appropriate leadership and things but then also the risk that we face within our very nature of the increased um, threat environments that different services work at and just simply their business as usual the risk around shift work around fatigue around um, you know imbalance of, of, of work-life balance all those sorts of things we, I mean, you talk a lot about as well um, to do with the with the risk because you mentioned the first thing to do is obviously to identify the mm. risks involved uh, and the analysis that comes with that, but then also changing uh, the attitudes within organisations. Mm. Now, this is a really important part, and I and I understand that it's it's something that's that can't be solved in a half an hour conversation. But can you give us a little bit of a? I mean, you, you're you take more of a holistic approach. You're saying that every level needs to be involved in this. It's not the employee, the employer. It's, uh, tell us a little bit around, around this. Yeah, and you put that beautifully to be fair. That's every, everybody has a role to play. At all levels, we have a role to play. But what's really important is that we take on this challenge sort of together. They have an understanding um, of both the, the what mental health and what mental illness and mental injury, the differences between them, um, understanding the changes, recognising how we can see it within ourselves first and foremost, but then to be able to gauge on, another, on each other. And uh, leaders and people of influence within our organisations actually stepping up and um, doing what needs to be done at the point of when it needs to be done and, and sort of earlier rather the better as opposed to waiting for you know that that big injury to be done or somebody to mm. be stood there looking into a big hole worried that you know is that their career you know it's it's accessing this earlier and so do you believe it has to start at the top with the leaders to initiate this if i'm honest i think it's uh it's got to be an organizational shift it's uh, boots on the ground through to high executive um you've got to be looking at things from recruitment through to retirement um, and as well, you've got to, uh, it's got to be holistic to the point of also, if you can, including the family, uh, understanding of people who care for these individuals outside of work as well, to have a true understanding of what potentially they might go through and how to recognise those changes on a, on a mental health journey to keep people in a good place. And may you just touch on something that's really important. I mean, the, the support network, the families, the partners, the friends of... Uh, I guess any workforce, but even I guess we're talking specifically to emergency services with the shift work, mm-hmm. uh, quite a number of hours without contact, I guess, as well is pretty common as well in this industry. But I mean, uh, and then also people taking things home from mm-hmm. their job. And I mean, this stuff is getting, um, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's been around for some time, but also the role that they play and and the help that is required from the supporter role tell us a bit about that and how important that is i know you mentioned it it is a part of the equation but i mean you've seen that playing a big role yeah definitely i mean we know that we need our support networks around us you know if you look at the the world health organizations you know um sort of the way in which they classify mental health is social and emotional well-being so you know you know that you need that social aspect to help us maintain that social well-being and it's that network that falls away unfortunately as potentially people become more injured and more ill um, and and move towards potentially something more diagnosable um, and as that drops away you know that's when people need it the most so if we can identify these changes earlier mm. while those support networks are in place mm-hmm. um, then it, it, it creates um, an easier journey back to being at that healthy area that we want to stay 
So a holistic approach within the organization, we're talking like, I guess if we get to the how-to, we're talking a committee to be set up amongst key people at different levels to be able to be the voice and come to the table to be able to openly discuss you know, what's going on with the different levels, what people are feeling and, and, and the solution. Is that how it's, is that, is that sort of how you started? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, the organizations I've gone through have tried and looked at that that way. And we did within the ACT ambulance service, they went through the whole blueprint for change. And a lot of that was, was having a voice for the people on the ground and, and the people within the agency to actually say what we wanted to change the whole organization. And that comes with its good and its bad because, you know, it, it, it's sort of the vision of what it will be and, and, and who's supporting it and where. But I think a lot of the time, or what I've seen very effective recently is, um, you know, evidence-based education across all levels of, of an organisation, giving that same information, giving that certain journey, reducing those same stigmas and barriers to care and, and looking at where does everybody play but not pointing the finger at any one in particular, you know, we've all mm. got to play, but we've all got to hold each other accountable as well. Um, mm. You know, I, I appreciate that that might be a very rosy way to look at things, um, and it's a very glass half full approach. But um, I'm very much a believer in, you know, in giving that education, really head on attacking the stigmas and those barriers, making people sort of accountable for their own self reflections, because that's how we're going to grow some some degree of emotional intelligence within our officers and promote that and, and encourage it through our leaders as well you know we're a lot of the time we hide behind a badge we hide behind a uniform we're, we're still in a culture where uh, you know showing compassion and understanding at that sort of around feelings is, is not our norm it's not something mm. we're comfortable with that but then we'll go into some of the most challenging environments there are and we and we'll also tell people some of the most terrible news that you possibly mm. could deliver but we won't have that chat about the fact that i'm not sitting right you mm. know or, or or right down to that thing that you're doing mm. is that's not you you know what's what's the like if we get to the solution for this like how do you have the conversations how do you create the culture that's safe enough for people to say, well, yeah, it's okay to open up. I mean, how does that happen? Because you see all these, the Are You OK days, and this, all this stuff is really, really good, and the ambassadors that they've got out there doing workshops and stuff is is really good. And I just picture myself, if I'm in this role in emergency services, how do you how do you instill something? How do you get to that, that, that influence where you can say, well, you know what, it's no longer acceptable to just... Um, you know, to tell someone to man up or, or harden up. and uh, Because, I mean, they're cliche sayings that have been around for some time, but where do you think we start with that with that sort of shit? And, and acknowledging exactly that. You know, I think the fact you just said, you know, the cliche sayings that have been around for a long time, and, you know, they're outdated is, is true, but they're still there. They're very much there. You know, um, we all would know people within our organisations that that's the result we, or the response we'd get from them. So that comes down again to that education, that understanding, that sort of breaking that down and, and you know, calling people on these behaviors i mean there's when i'm um, talking to people there's an, a couple of statistics in particular that you know i that always hit really home and that's right down to the simple ones like you know 50 percent of us will potentially develop a mental illness or injury in our mm. lifetimes and we know that the prevalence is even higher in, in emergency services so when you're talking to people and you're saying that that's 50 percent of the people that you love that you care for mm. your family as well as your colleagues and your peers and you know people like that then you know, if you're stigmatizing, if you're not willing to be one of those people to have that conversation, then well, you know, mm. it could be them tomorrow, it could be you mm. next week. You know, it's about supporting each other and knowing that it's not a, 
it's it's not something that happens to them over there or yeah. that person or, or someone else. It happens to any of us. None of us are immune. Because you don't want it to be one of their colleagues that are that have taken their own life to, to be the trigger no. that that is that forces someone to say, well, I, maybe maybe I should have asked some questions. Maybe I should have been a bit more responsive and open and. Um, and so do you think that's that's part of it as well? Yeah, it is. But also, you know, just what does need to be the trigger? You know, the trigger needs to be just that awareness that that we're all susceptible. And unfortunately, when those events come, they, they often are that sort of trigger, but they're triggered because of guilt or, or frustration or and there are other dangers that we're then wearing. You know, it, mm. it's, it's heightening more risk if we're waiting till that time. Not only if we lost somebody that potentially was preventable, mm. um, but we're, you know, we're, we're absorbing that in a more negative way ourselves. Because I mean, what we're talking about here is, you know, beliefs and attitudes, and, and these are very hard to change. Mm. And it takes some time, doesn't it, to, to inflict that change and, and some real leadership. And I'm not just talking about leadership from the top, I'm talking about leadership from within and from around you, is that correct? Yeah, and that's, and that's one of the things we've got to understand as well is that leadership is about influence. It's not necessarily about rank. And again, within emergency services, um, across most of them, you know, people are, are, have been promoted for a long time because of operational um, success. You know, they're good at that operational role they do. It doesn't necessarily make them people, people, a, people a people person mm. or a personal leader. Um, so yes, they have a responsibility, and yes, we need to ensure that, that they're held to, to you know that sort of expectation. But we all are leaders. You know, we all need to watch out for those changes within ourselves, within others, and make active steps. One of the, one of the things that you um, you are spending a bit of time on is the evidence based educational programs and the importance that that has to encourage long-term mental health. Yep. Tell us a bit about that and how important that is. Yeah, and this this has been sort of quite life-changing for me, really. I mean, I, I stepped into um, or became involved with this. I was actually following the work I've done within ambulance services and peer support programs, and I was peer support coordinator for the ACT Ambulance Service. I got a, um, a role um, as the director of uh, welfare programs for the ESA. I was acting in that for a little while. And while I was involved in that, we had the opportunity to go along and see a program um, that was actually being run for emergency services, exactly looking at this sort of stuff. And if I'm honest, I went along um, basically to, to discount it, to basically say, we don't need this, we're putting in other programs. This, you know, it's not gonna be for us. It's just like, well, you know, I've got to try it before I can diss it, really. Mm. I went along and um, I actually was really surprised on the result that it had on me uh, and on the other people that I saw doing this. And what I saw was, having effective and accurate evidence-based program literally threw a lasso around all the other mental health training I'd done over the 16 years of my emergency services career, pulled it all together, made it applicable to the operational environment that we work in, but then also with these programs in particular, delivered tools that you could use for those accurate self-reflections as well, which was just mind-boggling but eye-opening for me. Mm. And that's pretty much had the result in terms of changing a lot of my focus and it's the, the very reason why now I'm currently working for Lifeline Canberra because they got they bought the license for these programs. Uh, we're, we're talking about the R2MR, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, this is the Canadian model, uh, the Road to Mental Readiness, or also known as the Working Minds um, for Emergency Responders, as it's been renamed over in Canada. Um, but yeah, the Road to Mental Readiness, it's um, yeah, the evidence-based Canadian model that was developed between 
the Defence Force and the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Um, again, it's gone through all of their emergency services and over 100,000 first responders, so 96% of their first responder workforce have done these programmes. And it's done exactly what it sort of said it would and, and it's been clinically proven and, and sort of tested sort of since to, to show that it's had a marked reduction in stigma. You know, it has directly attacked those, uh, you know, approached those barriers for care and also changed the culture in terms of people putting their hand up for for care when it's needed, but also earlier, which is great. And this is carried out by peer workers, the program itself, or is it, obviously you have to be accredited for this program, but is it, are you finding it's, it's peer workers that are doing this stuff or is it more psychologists, clinicians? In terms of the, the, the training, in terms of the program, it's delivered out as a, as a sort of training package, but what it does is it, it, it gives the tools that it's very much about the individual. It it's, does the training in two sort of separates in terms of the initial courses. There's what they call a primary, which is um, Employee. employees, yep. and then a leadership, which is exactly the same, so everyone's getting the same um, education and understanding language, all that sort of stuff, but there's an additional half a day in terms of expectations, responsibilities for people of influence and, and leaders, so how, how to support and how to safeguard the people around you, but then also how to respond should there be uh, more significant injury or illness, and right through to bringing people back to the workforce in an, in an appropriate manner as well. So the difference between leadership, the primary and the secondary, the leadership and the employee part yep. of that program, it, is is that org chart based on where you are on the org chart for leadership or is this more, if, if you want it, anyone can do the leadership one if you want to because you're a leader? Yeah, it's an awesome question because what we found with a lot of the agencies we've been going out to, they've been looking at it very org charty. You know, it's, mm. it, it's about seniority through rank, but you're exactly right. You know, what, the way in which we've sort of selling it or, or looking at it in terms of what's the best impact is... Um, exactly that, you know, those positions of influence. So it's it's really suitable for anybody that's got, that is that sort of person that people would turn to because it gives you those additional skills and understanding. Uh, definitely for, you know, your peer support, your welfare teams. Um, but we've, um, you know, we've been encouraging, first of all, that for everybody to, to be going on them. And then, yeah, it's for, you know, agencies and individuals to decide which one they want to get on. The uh, in the brief research I did with this uh, road to mental readiness, um, I saw that the, the aim is to increase short term performance, increase long term mental health, yep. uh, decrease the barriers to care, like the access to it, yep. and they do that through those two courses. Yep. I'm yet I'm yet to have a chat with anyone from Canada, but I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> to do that at one of our conferences next yep. year. But um, tell me, was it is it something that you've you've saw that you've saw you've seen the evidence of it over yep. in Canada and how it's performed yep. you decided to say well we need to do that here and then as a result of that with lifeline that's what you're now sort of taking charge of yeah that's right yeah so I've come into lifeline as a as a trainer because I've got the credentials sort of to do as well but also partly as their sort of business development side of things of, of how we can look towards getting this message across as many services as we can because we we know that it works from the evidence that has come from Canada um, and we're already seeing a real change and a real difference in the courses that we have. Uh, the feedback has been sort of quite phenomenal in terms of the fact that it's a real different sort of training. It's not just giving an overview of mental health. It's not looking for labels. It's not looking for diagnosis. It's basically saying that, you know, this is where you are. This is your normal social, emotional well-being. These are the things you've got to be aware of, you know, in terms of any change. And, and where, if you start to be in these areas for a prolonged period of time, then put your hand up, get some help and do it at a point when that's a cup of coffee or maybe chat with a peer support or mm. something like that or, you know, 
using a, a small amount of your EAP um, availability or something like that, rather than that being when you're looking down a big hole, worrying mm. that everything's falling away. And I guess the approach may be different to everybody depending on what, you know, the combination that they want to do at that time. Yep. But tell me, have you, how long has it been since you've started implementing this program? Yeah, we, we're just coming up to 12 months now, really, where we've been doing it with, in, within some of the agencies within Australia. Um, so we're at the point where we're, we're putting in some further reviews for ourselves and also starting to bring in you know, sort of follow-up stuff as well, um, which has all been very encouraging so far. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the anecdotes and the stories that we're getting is, are quite phenomenal and the people actively coming, there's waiting lists to get on it now in, in the agencies we're running it with, um, purely because of the fact that they're hearing the good news about it and there's people are talking about it. We're having people coming on because, you know, wanting to get on the leadership because members of their team <clears throat> have come back, you know, and, and have actively used the education following traumatic events or, you know, and they want to know the language, they want to understand it, they, they want to sort of, they're seeing this marked change in some of the areas they didn't think they would, which has been really encouraging. So 12 months this has been in effect and you've seen some, some good signs of progress since yeah. then. And uh, are you saying when you say the agencies, uh, there's a waiting list, is this for the employers to get on board to get you to roll this out in their organisation or is this for people just lining up to do the course? This is people lining up to do the course, yeah. So we've got, uh, we, the, at the moment we're running at, at, uh, at a reasonably good capacity um, in terms of doing the courses, but the courses are run between 18 and 24 people on each one. And the reason for that being that that's an optimum number for people to be able to have their say and not feel that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we do a bit of group stuff, so it, it makes it comfortable sizes. And hitting that comfortable, that 24 limit is where the waiting lists are in terms of, yeah. depending on where we are within the country to deliver them. And you're often finding we'll turn up and there's a list of 24 and two people went outside just in case there's two any that don't show. So, so you're rolling this out nationally? Yeah, at the moment, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And so you're seeing some good results. Is this specific to emergency services or is this to any corporate? So there's the, the road to mental readiness is designed very much for emergency service environment. It's a, it was initially for defence and mm-hmm. then it was civilianised 2013 to go to emergency service workers. So that's the model we're running out there. But we are also just starting. We've done one trial so far, but we're going to be bringing out the the corporate version or the more business version, which is, again, it's taking it into a more mainstream working environment and that's called the working mind. Um, and again, we've we've got a few government departments who've already signed up for that. And uh, yeah, it's it's follows exactly the same sort of message and the idea is to have the language but all that's done is it's taken away the emergency service style environment and the examples and, and obviously a lot of the evidence base is, is fact based and actual and you're hearing accounts and, and um, you know video testimonial testimonial sorry from um, actual officers and stuff so that's not in the in the sort of civilian version as it were. Yeah so as an example if you're an emergency services worker and you're working for the ambulance in the Northern Territory say yep. Darwin uh, and do they just talk to their supervisor, their superior, and say, hey, we should bring this up here, and then they look at it and they get in touch with you? Is that how it works? Yep, that would be it. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, at the moment we are moving around. We're trying to go around, and particularly in Interlakes of Darwin and, and WA, we've been going and done a couple of trials and a few bits and pieces so people can see it and know mm. what it's all about. Um, it's doing very well at the moment, sort of, um, particularly obviously around Canberra, New South Wales, up in yeah. Queensland, and, and areas which are easier for us to, to access. <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of travel and, and it's just a case of yeah, give, get in contact with Lifeline Canberra because um, that's the, the licenses specifically through Lifeline Canberra with support of uh, Beacon Group, who are the people that helped to, to, to bring it across. Um, and then, yeah, we'll, we're more than happy to sort of try and help out where we can because the, 
the great thing about this, and again, we do a lot of other educational programs as well, and, and a lot of things that complement this, but this works. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I've, I've been willing to put my money where my mouth is. I've stepped away from a senior management role within ACT Ambulance Service because I felt I was banging my head against a brick wall inside agencies trying to make a change. So I've come out to somewhere that's got a reputation like Lifeline that I can put a passion in terms of the training that I've got um, and actually walk into people and say, look, this is, this is what you can do. You can make a difference for you and you can make a difference for the people around you. And it's, it's powerful. I know we've, we've uh, touched on the initial, uh, the initial step, which is identifying the risk correctly and the analysis of it. We've also spoken about probably the third part of it, which is the evidence base of the road to mental readiness that, that they're rolling out with the first responder agencies. But the, the middle bit, which we probably haven't touched on as much yet, reducing stigma and barriers to care. Yep. Tell us a little bit about that and, and stigma. Is self-stigma is a lot of it, or do you think it's more... Yeah, we, we actually, we actively um, approach on both. You know, we look at the stigma in terms of what's around you. We know that there's stigma. So this is everything from, you know, understanding exactly like I said earlier, like that 50% factor, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's as simple as it comes, but, but looking right down to language that's used, uh, terminology that people use, you know, the, the black humor within agencies in terms of that's seen as a coping mechanism, but the impact that has on people maybe then approaching others to get that care. Um, and yes, we look at self-stigma. We look at self-stigma in relation to understanding, you know, how that has an impact on us daily but also as we re- reduce our cognitive function and we're not thinking you know with our frontal aspect of our brain and we're actually you know the amygdala is firing and then we're having all this um, stress responses the actual how those self stigmas actually become even higher and and the, the ability to put your hand up becomes even harder so it acknowledges that if somebody just comes to talk to you what a privileged response that is and mm. then you know we look at things like you know of people that do access care, if they see appropriate mental health providers, 36% of them do so because of recommendation from a trusted colleague or peer. Not a loved one, not a partner, not a family member, but a trusted colleague or peer. Mm. So it's like you don't have to be their best friend. You don't have to be you know, the person that knows them in and out, but they just gotta know that you've got their back and you trust them. And if they open up to you, you'll be that conduit to care. You, you know, you'll, you'll take that step with them. So that's, that's really important. Um, we back that up with resilient skills as well. So we show people how to build a bit of um, some fitness for the brain, they call it, in terms of understanding that. So that's based around a lot of cognitive behavioral therapies, looking at that in terms of strengthening and people be able to cope with stresses when that amygdala sort of is, is firing and you know, we've got the hyper aroused response. And then the barriers to care is, is very agency specific. And um, this, is, this is a challenging bit but it's quite a fun bit because, you know, again, we're basically asking, well, what is it in your organization when you're having that conversation and somebody needs help, it's the but. You know, I want to get help, but, or if I get help, this will happen. It's looking at where the, where the, the, what's stopping them from doing it. And, you know, you, you get the, often the same sort of things coming through. Obviously the career impacting aspects, there's finance, there's time, there's all these sorts of things that come through and, and basically, push it back on, on, on the group and write, well, what's the answer? You know, mm. and, and every single barrier that comes up, there's always a way around it. But there are a lot of them, because of the historical understanding or the historical thought process within agencies, those barriers, just the fact they're there are enough to stop people putting their hand up for care. Mm. But when we actually, as a group, look at them and think, well, you know, things like it's expensive, well, but that's what EAP's for, that's what early access to, you know, physio, uh, sorry, psycho, um, psychologist services, uh, you know, your GP's mental health plan, all these things, whatever it might be, there's a way around it. 
So if you understand that you can get around these barriers, you can support people around them. Yeah, so just probably educating them around that because they yeah. probably wouldn't even know that that stuff existed, no. would they? And, and a lot of it is education. You know, it's crazy how poorly educated a lot of um, officers across all agencies are in terms of what's actually out there for them. You know, then there's, there's still misconceptions that yeah. it's not confidential or that, you know, um, you know, medical professionals feed back to managers and all this sort of mm. stuff. And, you know, I've been in a... In this in a managerial role, and I've never once had that information fed to me. You know, it just doesn't happen. You know, it's uh, and and just yeah, the fact that this is there for them, there's things there for their family, there's things there for the partner. It's uh, people just don't realise. And how much of that is because the employee doesn't know, hasn't educated themselves, versus management, the employer isn't really promoting or understanding, perhaps, or pushing this stuff out there so that they have access to the education i mean is it is it both yeah i think it is i think it's both i think i think service is getting better now and they are putting now that we've got you know some really really good welfare teams we've got some really really good um you know programs and people working you know we're having the introduction of psychologists and and um you know teams um, around these areas within certain services so it's still there but there's still that misconception of what it will mean to access them and also think people think that they've got to be truly broken before they access them they don't mm-hmm. understand that actually getting in contact and understanding these services when you're in a good place means that you're going to have more confidence in approaching them when you are feeling change um so having i call it a checkup from the neck up it's a case of yeah. you know get get yourself and in and you know have a bit of an mot around what's going on in your in your mind and then where if there's any change you're seeing somebody you already have a relationship that sort of thing um so it's it's normalizing it all really yeah so that early identification uh, yeah. really helps trying to prevent the the illness from progressing or, yeah, or getting worse and worse that's it and this, this goes on the back of the whole, you know, the, the evidence around, you know, for every hour we leave uh, injury unattended or don't go to the professional help for a, for a mental illness or injury, it's a day's worth of recovery. So, you know, you're looking at things like that, then get in early. Yeah. And so you mentioned, obviously, an internal uh, analysis where, or, or, sorry, a neck up. Um, uh, sort check of up from check up. up from the neck up. I like that. Uh, but t- tell me, what other personal coping strategies or, or mechanisms are there for people? Yeah, and again, we question them on this as well. You know, it's, it's do you have a welfare plan? You know, do you have something that, that that's there to, to safeguard you? You know, what is what do you do for you? What time do you take out for you? And a lot of the time, people maybe have something that they're going to do. You know, at the end of a the day, they like to go home, and this is how they relax, and that's great. You know, you all need to what you know. What's your you know, what are you going to do for you? But then what are you going to do for you after a slightly bad day? Mm. What can you do after a crappy day? What are you going to do after a really terrible day? You know, it needs to be, you need to scale it and you need to be aware of what you're going to do, what you need, what's going to be your release and, and, and the fact that that's safe and it's there and it's healthy. But it's, you know, if it's reliant on other people or things around you, what happens if they're not there? Yeah. You know, if, you're, if your welfare is to go home and, you know, walk the dog or, you, or you know, play with the kids and what happens if you know, the wife's taken to see the mother and the kids and the dog aren't there that, that night? You know, what are you going to do? What's your backup? Yeah, I mean, that makes really, uh, really good common sense and, and thanks for sharing those, those different uh, strategies. What, what, uh, I, when we look at the stuff that you're doing, I guess what I really like about the fact uh, with what you're up to is is that you're doing you're proactive so you're out there not just waiting for the challenge but you're also actively out there trying to say well who do we need to get in front of next and how can we get it because 
the, the, the earlier that you guys can get out there and, and implement this and roll this stuff out, yep. the better chance that, they, that you have and they have of, of actually intercepting, yep. preventing um, further mental ill health. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, we, and we've had some great conversations with people during and after the courses in things that we've, we've identified and the differences made to, to people already. You know, the, the feedback's been sort of phenomenal, but that's exactly it. What works with this is we see a lot of the time of reactive um, education or, you know, uh, reactive management of mental health in general, you know, in terms of the way in which it's often approached. Um, and this is truly a proactive course. And it's not that flash in the pan because it, it's, you know, it's got the additional stuff that can go with it following. And it leaves people with tools. It leaves people with the ability to do this, to actually, you know, and easy to implement non-stigmatic language and um, direction that can be adopted at all levels of an organisation to keep it as part of the culture. And that's what works. And mate, that application of tools uh, and skills that you can actually learn to take away and implement to make a change uh, or a positive effect uh, is critical because too many times you go and you listen to people and you hear them say, yeah, okay, that's cool. But then at the end of it, you're like, well, what can I do with that? Or you, or you get some really good research that comes out, uh, some good data, and they present this stuff. And at the end of it, you, people leave there thinking, well, that was really good data, but now what do we do? Like, how do we apply this stuff? Yeah. So the fact that, that you have that application of tools and skills to be able to go out there and, and leave people more equipped to handle this is, is really, really positive. Tell me about Lifeline. You're obviously enjoying that because yeah. if, you, if you want to stay there and, and do this and it seems to be your calling, which is really good, but what what's the future for you and, and Lifeline and how are you enjoying that? Yeah, I mean, Lifeline is a phenomenal agency and I'm, I'm a volunteer for them on their crisis support line as well. So I'm I, um, on the phones with them and, and that came following some of this, just getting in with Lifeline in terms of just seeing it's, they're just an amazing bunch of people, real sort of like-minded people that are positively trying to make a difference and they believe in their cause, which is very, very refreshing when you've had, come from 16 years in a service where you've been trying to create a healthy working uh, you know, workplace, a, a mentally safe workplace, to walk into one that, that lives, eats and breathes it is, is really sort of, Oh, it's hard to put into words almost, mm. but it just shows that it can be done, mm. you know, and, and they've got a really strong culture. They look out for each other. Um, and for me, I'd, I'd like to take this program and other programs to strength to strength. I think we really can make a difference within emergency services through, you know, a lot of things like today, the fact that we're here at a conference that's focusing on mental health for emergency services and frontline is just unbelievable. Um, and then, yeah, you know, if, if we can give back to that through these sort of educational programs and at the same time promote and give back to a cause like Lifeline, then it's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. And for the support networks, for the carers out there, I mean, the programs are available to them. Yep. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, say we've got, yeah, I mean, this program that we're talking about now, we've had non-frontline agencies come and ask to do this particular one as well because they feel that although they're not deemed as a frontline, they they maybe receive um, levels of contact with the public or uh, levels of aggression that they feel that warrant that. Um, but yeah, and so that's all there. But in terms of training programs within Lifeline into themselves, we do a lot of stuff around obviously understanding and acknowledging mental health. Um, a lot around communication skills in terms of being able to have those conversations with people and acknowledge, you know, the way in which that we need to, to be sort of addressing uh, conversations and concerns. And then 
as well obviously a very large part of our work being a crisis support services we are mm. is around suicide and suicide prevention and suicide mm. awareness um, which I would absolutely just I couldn't recommend strongly enough as well just people having a better understanding of that because this again this course and other courses will promote that hardest of questions as well mm. you know those are you having thoughts of suicide which is a question which unfortunately we need to ask um, and doesn't often get asked enough mm. I agree and especially when you see the statistics too I mean it's it's just getting worse yeah. Yeah, right. um, so Matt, this has been really, really good for us and, and for our listeners to understand your journey and where you've come to and the programs that you're uh, affecting uh, and implementing through through Lifeline and your role. Is, it, is there, because you've got a BDM role with them as well, is That's that correct? correct? Yeah. So, so what else, is there, other than the program, what else are you, are you you're going to develop the, like if we're moving forward, yep. you're looking to develop this for corporates uh, other than just emergency services? Yep. What, what's the plan on your radar? Yeah, the, the, the plan with our radar, and we've got a, you know, sort of uh, a, Chief Officer, who's um, or CEO, sorry, who's very um, sort of visionary in terms of the way in which she wants to do things. And it's Carrie Ann, Carrie Ann, yeah, yeah Carrie uh, Leeson. Um, so she, we're um, looking at hopefully getting this a uh, common language across uh, emergency service agencies is our is our initial response. Then looking at obviously wider agencies um, and government sort of departments, and then straight out to sort of private and corporate in terms of. You know, if this becomes a common language like it has in Canada in terms of the way in which people address and can talk about mental health in a non-stigmatic and simple language, then that's great. You know, and it does. It works at all levels. You know, I've, I've got the continuum on my fridge at home for my kids. You know, mm. it, it's just, um, it's it's the way in which we can change the, the, just the general conversation within our society because a lot of that stigma is not just within our agencies, but it's it's within society. It's in our culture. That's the mental health continuum yeah, you have? That's, the, yeah, that's the one of the tools. Healthy, yeah. reactive... Yeah, it, it's, um, you've got healthy, then injured. it's um, reacting, injured and ill. And oh, it's, yeah. it's a continuum that sort of shows the changes within emotional state um, and then across a bi-directional sort of the fact you can move um, along this continuum um, on a daily basis. But the idea is obviously if you're starting to sit in an area which is not healthy, which is not in the green for you, so you're starting to sit within a reacting or an injured phase for a little bit um, longer than you would like, then obviously it's acknowledging that, asking for help, or me recognising in yourself or in somebody else that that's not normal for you. And and having that conversation using this tool is really good because it's not just me saying to you, you know, you know, are you okay, are you okay? with not yeah. anything behind it? It's, well, actually, I've noticed this change in you. I've noticed these things, mm. and I'm concerned about you. What's going on? Because that's not normal for you. It makes the conversation very easy. And creates that awareness, which is really important, yeah, isn't definitely. it? Yeah, definitely. And so, how old are your kids? I've got uh, 10-year-old twins. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wait, so so this is so I mean I've got an eight a six year old and a three year old I mean do you recommend putting this stuff up on the fridge and then yeah I mean they, the the great thing is you find they're often the, the kids now are actually quite good at talking about this sort of stuff they have quite a good awareness you know they, the school counsellors and the mm. way in which they talk about these you know they they do all their water and rock training and all these sorts of things in their schools and all this sort of stuff that that they're used to so bringing it into a language which one is color coded is really good for them but the fact that they understand that they're reactionary and their and their emotional journeys are normal when they go up and down and they're mm. having a you know reaction but they're going to come back down to where they are and, and to acknowledge that you know if they're finding it hard to sit in a place that they feel healthy or return then you know that's when they need to come and but at their age thankfully it's you know come have a cuddle and have a yeah. little chat and go for a walk and see where they are but they're good habits to get into it at that age, Young age yeah so if we look at the next five years, 10 years with the stuff, I mean, with what's, 
what we've got currently planned um, and the way things are going with regards to stigma. Yep. How do you feel? How do you feel about the industry? How do you feel about the the mental health of emergency services worker and the future of that that, that will play in the next five ten years? Do you think it's positive? Are you optimistic? Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm, I, we've got a lot of work to do, but I'm very optimistic. No, I, I'm I'm up for the challenge. I'm really enjoying the fact of being somebody who's trying to be a bit of a voice out there to being uh, a positive influence towards change because I truly believe that we can do it. I believe that, you know, keeping it in sort of this sort of uh, quite sort of simple style of, of programs that people can adopt is, is a great way forward. Um, and I think, you know, it, but we do need to recognise that that everybody has a part to play because you know a lot of the time we're hearing some of the bad stories or we're hearing you know the, the loudest voices but what we're missing are the the actually hundreds and hundreds of people who have returned from a mental health journey and are stronger than they were before and are, are back in the workforce as a positive influence you know and and that's got to mm. be applauded you know yeah we don't hear about that much do no, we don't you know po- po- you know post-traumatic growth we look at that mm. through post-traumatic stress obviously but there's growth from return from any mental health injury or illness I mean, we learn those resilient skills we learn the ability to cope and we've got those resources around us to, to help us should anything happen again so you know if we people who are actively promoting that mm. that's going to make a change and the cost not only to the health of people that are, are going through that yep. um, but also the i mean the cost of of people not being able to come back to work yep. i mean it's through the roof oh, it and is. so there's such a big opportunity for employers to embrace this yep earlier definitely i mean you know if you look at the, the the more recent statistics in terms of the financial impact on australia alone within industry they reckon it was uh, 11 billion a year it costs in terms of you know absenteeism presenteeism and, and paid out mm. compensation claims you know mm. that's just i mean that in itself is just ludicrous yeah you know we then you flip that to you know the 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 other things that you hear around you know one dollar spent preventatively is four saved all that sort of stuff then, yeah you know it just makes sense. And that's just the ROI. I mean, if we're yeah. looking at, the, obviously, the personal cost yeah, as God, well. Yeah. I mean, I mean to get people back into what they love and what yeah. they were... what they. I mean, because it's not like they don't like or love what no. they were doing. No. It's just the, um, the conditions. And, yeah. and making sure it's safe for them to do so. And, and yeah. again, but we acknowledge that by, by dealing with that mental journey, health journey earlier, that impact is going to be less as well. So, mm. you know, and... and for them, it's a, it's a, it's not it's as big an ordeal. And you know, yeah, if you take the financial aspect out of it, mm. and just the the impact it has on that person and the culture and the you know morale of an organisation, it, it it clearly has a massive impact. And then, unfortunately, the people that we do lose or go on to other things because they feel that they're unsafe or they can't continue in that environment or whatever it might be, just the corporate knowledge and the skills that we're losing as well. Mm. It's just the, the years of investment into people to get into. Uh, the level of expertise they need for our emergency service and frontline workers. And then, you know, that's lost through poor attention to their social and emotional well-being. It just doesn't make sense. No, it's really, it's really interesting. And, and I think, I mean, a lot of the work that you're doing is is amazing. Lifeline is an amazing, amazing oh, organisation. Really and it's obviously evident of that with, with your experience with them. And um, yeah, they're doing a great job. And obviously the role that you're doing with them is is uh is really important so thank you for being such a leader in this field and and implementing a lot of this stuff because it's it's crucial that we that we do get this out there um for the better um health mental health of people in the future uh as we round for the straight for home before we finish the podcast a few quick questions Uh, who's been an inspirational person for you oh 
doing it within my career. Yeah, it could be career, could be um, motivational, prefer- just could be personal. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had some very uh, inspirational people in my life. I've been very, very fortunate. Um, very much my father was very much an influence to me. My wife is very much an influence to me. Um, and I've also been under the, um, the leadership of some really strong um, people of, of varied backgrounds. Um, you know, there's some um, particular chap called Ian Lewis that I worked with when I was in Hart. He was phenomenal and just, you know, in terms of taking a holistic approach in terms of both your physical and your emotional and mental safety. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's quite a few. I could imagine. Yeah, yeah, imagine. no, that's okay. I'll put you on the spot there. Have you got any books you recommend? Any, whether it's personal growth, motivational ones, do you read anything? Yeah, the, the Feeling Good Handbook by David Burns is a good one in terms of understanding okay. your psychology around the way in which we think and, and understanding our sort of uh, thinking traps and the, the negative things that we tend to fall into. Um, I tend to do um, a lot more sort of reading around. Um, it's, that's part of my um, my self-care plan in terms of just de-stressing. So a lot mm. of my reading that I of things that I can remember afterwards are often the books that are just sort of a bit more chill out books and stuff but they're, yeah, they're probably not they would not do me any favours to mention them now I don't know if they're okay. in his quality literature <laughs> no, 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 no that's okay that's okay uh, and the last question I probably have for you is uh, what's your go to karaoke song <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, God, you put me on. It's in my head, and I can't even think what it's called. Um, big oh. Wheels, Big Wheels keep Oh, yeah, good one. Uh, that's uh, Credence, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Proud Mary. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah good on you. All right. Uh, well, mate, thanks very much, Mark. I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming uh, on the podcast. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will benefit from this, and we appreciate the stuff you're doing out there, and thanks for joining me. No worries. Pleasure, mate. Thanks for your time. Appreciate thanks, Mark. It. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.